entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, up to now, David, we have had usually two guests, two segments per show. And then you and I were talking about having Stanton Friedman on. And Stanton Friedman has been following the subject since the late 1950s. He has such a wealth of information that I was wondering, how can we restrict this guy to 40 or 45 minutes, you know? Well, basically, we can't. The the idea is that this is a guy who, besides the fact that he's one of the leading researchers, probably the leading researcher in the UFO field, he's also a scientist. He's a a nuclear physicist. And you have to take a guy like that very seriously. You know, one of the things that you and I have talked about in this show is that we want to really get to an understanding of what the paranormal means. What is the truth behind these things? I don't think we've approached this from the point of view of sensationalism. We're looking for answers. And... I think both of us feel that Stanton Friedman is a man who has spent enough time on this topic and done enough research, perhaps he can really enlighten us and and maybe not give us answers, but steer us in the right direction. He's got a lot of information. He broke the Roswell story, right? Pretty much, yes. He's the person who is credited with making people take it seriously. Up till then, it was just largely restricted to rumors. How can that be? I mean, if indeed the Roswell episode happened, It has to be one of the most important episodes in human history, certainly in the last hundred years. Maybe the most important thing that's ever happened to mankind, that this could potentially be swept under the rug, is is outrageous. And again, it's hard to know what really happened there, Gene, but Stanton has spoken to first-hand witnesses of that episode. He's the guy who really helped cull a lot of that information together. It seems to me like it would be irresponsible for us not to devote an entire episode to him. Honestly, I would have loved to have spoken to Lauren Coleman for uh, three hours. He was great in the last episode. You know, my point of view is that I'd rather spend more time speaking to a single person so that we don't have any concatenation of thought, so that we do have the ability to really get some real hard information, which is what I want the Paracast to be all about. I think that you would, too. Listeners, I'm going to let you vote on this question, okay? If you would like us, where it's possible, it's not always possible because a guest has different kinds of scheduling, but where it's possible to have a guest for the entire 90 minutes of the show, or would you rather have a variety of guests, send your responses to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. And remember also that we now have a message board on our home page. So if you go to theparacast.com, you click on our forums button, you could go participate Give your sightings, your reports. It doesn't have to be UFOs. Now, understand, tonight's show is all about UFOs and their impact, their potential reality. But we want you to tell us the kind of subjects you want to deal with. Would you like to hear more about cryptozoology, such as with Lauren Coleman, or we're going to have Ken Thomas back to talk about conspiracy theories? Is that your major interest? What about remote viewing, being able to see in your mind an event that's taking place in another part of the world. Is that possible? <laughs> I can think of places I'd like to see where things are going on, like the Oval Office, after <laughs> everybody's left. What really goes on in that room, Gene? There's got to be something to explain these crazy things that are happening in our world. But no, I, I think that it makes a lot of sense to spend time with one guest, and hopefully people will vote accordingly. Coming up on the Paracast, an evening with Stanton Friedman. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. 
Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david bandney you never know what's going to happen next you are about to enter another dimension a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, Murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. So Stanton Friedman, how did you as a nuclear physicist get involved in UFOs? Well, actually, I've never been involved with a UFO, never having seen one, you know. But uh, <laughs> actually, it, 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 it's pretty straightforward, but not what most people expect. I was ordering books from a mail-order book place in New York, Marlboro. I don't know if they're still around. And I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping. I'm a cheapskate. And this was 1958. I was a 24-year-old nuclear physicist working on nuclear airplanes, one of the many canceled government-sponsored research and development programs I worked on. I was working for General Electric. And there was a book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, by Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, who had headed the Air Force Project Blue Book in the early 50s. And the book was a hardcover book marked down from 295 to a dollar. I still have it. It wasn't going to cost me anything, because shipping would have been a dollar if I hadn't ordered it. And I had three thoughts, actually. One was that the Air Force was a co-sponsor of our program, and that year we were spending $100 million a year, GE was, on aircraft nuclear propulsion. So big program. They were a co-sponsor. I didn't dislike the Air Force. Secondly, gee, if these things were real and used nuclear energy, and I didn't have any feeling about it one way or another, would certainly help the program. And third, you know, if the worst comes to worst, it's worth a laugh, and it wasn't costing me anything. So I got the book, I read it, it intrigued me. It didn't convince me, but it intrigued me. Uh, there were some measurements down at Los Alamos of some nuclear signals and stuff. I shared it with a neighbor. Charlie was 10 years older than I, and an engineer, and he was more impressed than I was. We each moved away. As a matter of fact, when I saw him umpteen years later to speak to his electrical engineering group, first thing he said was, we knew you when you didn't believe in flying saucers, which was a nice thing to say. Anyway, I went to California, read 15 more books, 
some of which were trash, and if I'd read them first, I'd have probably never read another one. And then I stumbled across at the University of California Berkeley Library, a privately published version of the largest study ever done, Project Blue Book, special report number 14. And what was surprising is not only the huge amount of data, 240 charts, tables, graphs, and maps, 3,200 sightings. It was done by Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, a very well-respected research and development firm. But what surprised me was, A, it hadn't been mentioned in any of these 15 books that I had read, which seemed a little odd, and B, it was clear that the Secretary of the Air Force was lying through his teeth. The, this version of the report included the press release that was put out. And here's the Secretary of the Air Force saying the popular myth, if you will, that we believe on the basis of this study that no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available, unquote. That seems pretty straightforward. 3% unknown just because there wasn't enough data. When you look at the report, and I'm a data hound, that's what we physicists do, I guess, and I was in data heaven, but I started collecting my own. Their, their tables aren't set up in such a way as to reveal it very straightforwardly. 21.5% of the sightings couldn't be explained, not 3%. And they were completely separate from the ones which were listed as insufficient information. Well, maybe you could have given this guy a calculator. <laughs> you know, maybe he... Well, well they didn't have calculators then. He was they? the Secretary of the Air Force, darn it. He should... <laughs> we had desk calculators, big, awkward, <laughs> noisy objects, you know. Expensive, too, incidentally. That one really got to me because I've been working under security, so I'm accustomed to... Oh, how shall I say this? Uh, sort of bending the truth a little bit to avoid revealing anything classified. But a flat-out lie, that was something else. And so that got me rolling down the path of the cosmic water gate. And by some quirk of synchronicity, I guess, within a year of that discovery, I was project engineer in a contract with Aerojet General Nucleonics. This is out on the West Coast, San Ramon, California, which then had walnut trees and later had housing by the square mile. <laughs> I was project engineer on a contract out of the Foreign Technology Division of the Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is the group that had Project Bloom. <laughs> now, my contract had nothing to do with UFOs. It was uh, analysis and evaluation of fast and intermediate reactors for space vehicle applications. The one word that was missing was Soviet. My job was to review Soviet technology that might be useful in building nuclear power plants for space applications. And I would go back to FTD, Foreign Technology Division, every month or two, and then spend time over at Battelle Memorial Institute, the same place that did Blue Book Special Report 14. And uh, their connection with the Air Force was classified, incidentally. The press release that uh, told about the study, sort of, never mentioned who did the work or where it was done, and the press never asked. One of the many crazy things about how the subject of flying saucers has been treated by the media, the scientific community, and so forth, is the failure to go after the right information. There's about a dozen PhD theses that have been done about UFOs. One of them dealt with press coverage, Dr. Herbert Strentz, and he had some strong works 
words to say about the inadequacy of the coverage, the failure to deal with the right people, the willingness to accept any explanation. He, he, would you believe read thousands of UFO clippings? <laughs> Not an enviable job. So that got me started. Now, I was quiet. I joined APRO and uh, NICAP, uh, the two major organizations back then, and got their newsletters and stuff. But I didn't really go public. I mean, I was working on government-sponsored programs. There were security angles and stuff. But I got to meet Frank Edwards when I was working for General Motors on another canceled program in Indianapolis. And uh, he spoke to a group that I was a program chairman for. And when he came out with his new book, Flying Saucer Serious Business, he sent me a copy. I was by this time working for Westinghouse on another eventually canceled program, this time Nuclear Rockets in Pittsburgh. He sent me the book, and I, I called Frank, I guess, and I said, look, Frank, I want to go public, but you got any suggestions for me? He knew everybody. He was a newsman and so forth. And so he gave me some names, and, you know, synchronicity, I don't know what to call it. One of them was a, a program in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, called Contact, a call-in show at 7 o'clock, prime time, if you will. And KDKA is one of the oldest radio stations in the country, 50,000-watt clear channel station. So they got a huge audience. And I called them, and it was one of those, don't call us, we'll call you. I figured I'll never hear from them again. Well, it wasn't too long thereafter. I get a call at 6.30 to be on a 7 o'clock show because somebody had canceled, I suspect, but never knew whether it was true or not, that they had called a bunch of other people who couldn't get there in time. <laughs> Somebody at work heard me on the show. I wasn't at my best because I didn't know how to deal with hosts who say stupid things. I'm better at that now. <laughs> I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> we never say stupid things, Stan. So you're well, good hands. Some, somebody at work heard me on the show and had a book review club, and their book for the month was Flying Saucer Serious Business. So they wondered if I could give a lecture in her living room. So I did that. Because I've been active, we had a group, UFO Research Institute in uh, Pittsburgh, and we were busy investigating and stuff. That was my first lecture in somebody's living room. And I did the chicken and pea circuit, because I did that same talk show a, a number of times, and started doing lots of talks. And it was then I had the opportunity, just by luck, I'm going to work one of two times, and I went to work with Joanne, a supervisor at Westinghouse, and I was saying, gee, my car was in the garage. And I said, no, I'd like to speak at Carnegie Mellon University. She says, well, talk to the dean. And I said, well, and I talked to Dr. So-and-so, and he wasn't interested. She said, Stan, the dean's my husband. He's heard you on the radio. Why don't you give him a call? <laughs> so I called him, and we arranged for a, a date, a morning talk. And I figured, gee, i got to take time off work. He asked how much I wanted. And I figured, well, I'll ask for a hundred bucks. So he'll knock me down to fifty. But still, so when I said a hundred, he said sold. And then because I knew his wife, he told me what he was paying the other speakers in the series: fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred, etc. <laughs>
I'll tell you what, hold that thought. Let me tell everybody you're in the Paracast. With Gene Steinberger, David Bietney, we're proud to have Stanton T. Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator, on the show. And if you want to check out his writings, go to stantonfriedman.com. We also have a special link at the Paracast.com website. If you click on that link where it says Stanton T. Friedman, it will go to a page where he gives you a little bit of a special on some of his books. Stan, go ahead. Okay, so the talk went extremely well at Carnegie Mellon. He wrote a nice letter to the agent who had booked the other speakers that he had. A very important talk for me was speaking to the Engineering Society of Detroit. Sold out three weeks in advance for 1,008 people for my lecture, Flying Saucers Are Real. And there wasn't one negative question. So I did a whole bunch of technical groups. And I stress this because... People seem to think that only cooks and quacks and little old ladies in tennis shoes are interested. It was the very enthusiastic response of my professional colleagues that really decided and made me decide when the bottom fell out of the advanced nuclear and space systems business to go full time. I was, the company actually paid my way, Westinghouse paid my way to speak to the American Nuclear Society section in Los Alamos. I mean, I'm a member, and the company was, of course, a corporate member, but they had 500 people for that talk, which was rather unusual for them. And I spoke to a bunch of sections of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers and management clubs for big companies. And so their enthusiastic response, and they weren't going to put up with any baloney. And one lecture in Pittsburgh, my boss's 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 boss was there. You know, they had plenty of opportunity if they didn't like what I was doing. Uh, when I asked them for, a, you know, give me some guidelines, they gave me this response. You can say what you please on your time. You can identify yourself as a Westinghouse nuclear physicist, but we'd like you to start with a disclaimer that the views you're about to hear are mine and mine alone and not those of my company. Could you ask for anything better than that? I don't think so. So that got me rolling, and, you know, here I am, more than 600 colleges and over 100 professional groups later in 50 states, 9 provinces, and 16 other countries now around the world. I was in China several months ago gave two talks, one in Hong Kong and one in Dalian. And what I found is that there is enormous public interest. There is reluctance to open up unless it's safe. I ask at the end of my lectures how many people here believe they've heard what I would consider, seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer, having defined my terms earlier. And the hands go up reluctantly, but I'm on the stage. I count out loud and point to each one, one, two, three, four. By the time I get around the hall, it's about 10% of the people who are there. But then I ask, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. If there's anybody left, I'll say, how many of you were in the military at the time? If there's still any hands left, I'll say, you want to tell us about it? I get some great lines and some great stories. Uh, one guy in front of 1,300 people said, I can't. They told me not to say anything, which was a wonderful line. So what I've tried to do is to take advantage of four aspects of my background that well prepare me for doing what I'm doing. One is that I worked on far out advanced propulsion systems, fission and fusion rockets, nuclear power plants for space. So I can deal authoritatively, if you will, with the arguments that you can't get here from there. Almost always made by people who know nothing about advanced technology. 
two, I worked under security for 14 years, and I've been to 20 archives, so I can deal with the, the cosmic Watergate aspects that cover up some of the silly arguments that are made saying that you can't keep secrets, which is absurd. Three, I have had to answer, oh, I figure, something over 40,000 questions over the years. The same questions over and over again, of course. But And so I've probably done more thinking about how to properly answer the why questions. You know, why don't they land on the White House lawn? Why is the government hiding the truth? And, you know, questions like that. And the normal response when I answer is, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. And finally, I'm at home on the stage. I'm a Leo. Me and Benito Mussolini and Peter Jennings, I should add. Wait, and not so lamented from this end of town. Uh, it's been an interesting run. I've published more than 80 papers. I dig in depth into things. I learned a lesson when I was in school in fifth grade. If you're going to take on authorities, you better have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. Or they're going to chop you off pretty quick. Hmm. So the response has been great. I am not a masochist. No eggs, no tomatoes. And I get a lot of, how shall I call it, uh, quiet support. I was in Colorado Springs a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. And I spoke at Pikes Peak Community College, but there are a lot of people in Colorado Springs who work for the government. NORAD headquarters, Cheyenne Mountain, mm -hmm. you know, and Peterson Air Force Base, places like that. The college had never filled its auditorium. They filled it. And I had to give a second lecture because there was so much interest. And there were several people who quietly, when I was out autographing books and stuff, told me, you know, keep up the good work, so glad you're here, uh, you know, like what you're doing, this kind of thing. These are from insiders now. And so it, there is a certain amount of satisfaction that comes from that, you know? And uh, I'm willing to take on anybody. I'm some people probably heard me on Coast to Coast with Dr. Seth Shostak, the SETI cultist or specialist, if you will, to be more polite. Uh -huh. And uh, Well, I'm quite willing because what I have found is that people appreciate my straightforwardness. That is, I point out the four basic rules for debunkers. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. Uh, if you can't attack the data, attack the people. And do your research by proclamation, because investigation is too much trouble and nobody will know the difference anyway. This almost sounds like the current state of political discourse today. In general. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> well, these same rules can be applied to debunk anything. There's no question about it. Um, yeah. And, you know, when people say, well, there are two sides to every story, well, there are two different sets of opinions, maybe, but sometimes there is a lack of symmetry. Somebody like me cites chapter and verse, facts, data, you know, that sort of thing. And then there are the debunkers who do their research by proclamation. Well, those arguments aren't symmetric. Why should I pay attention to people who obviously haven't looked at the evidence, don't cite any evidence, don't reference the studies, their opinion? Well, I, I did this once. At a, I spoke to a Gulf Research Lab management group. Guy interrupted me twice. The third time, the boss says, hey, let him finish. So I turned to him, and I'm sneaky. In the course of my lecture, I cover five large-scale scientific studies, and I ask how many people have read each one afterward. You know, just raise your hands. So he says, well, I'm absolutely sure one could come to other conclusions than yours. And I said, well, as I recall, you hadn't read any of those five large-scale scientific studies, had you? Well, no. That's the difference between us, isn't it? 
I give you my conclusions. I give you the sources of data. You haven't looked at any of that data. Whose opinion's worth more? <laughs> and he shut up. <laughs> As he should. Why should people think that they should take a public platform if they don't know anything about the subject at hand? You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Well, I'll tell you what, before we get to our next question, let me tell everybody you're in the PowerCast. We're proud to spend an evening with Stanton Friedman. If you go to stantonfriedman.com, you'll learn more about his writings. He has lots of articles up there, by the way, that are quite interesting, and you want to explore them further. And David, my friend, you had a comment. So, Stanton, I, I, I'd like to ask you some of these big questions, and I'd like to start with the, the fact that you're a physicist. If these, it, it, let's assume that there are vehicles and there are creatures coming from another planet to ours. How are they doing it? Well, we don't need to know how uh, to say that they're coming here. They're here, they're here, whether they warp space and time or whatever. But what I have worked on, for example, are fusion propulsion systems. Now, every advanced civilization is going to know about fusion. Why? Because that's how the stars produce their energy. Absolutely. And if you use the right stuff in the right way, isotopes of hydrogen and helium, the two lightest and most abundant substances in the universe, mind you, if you use the right stuff, you can kick particles out the back end that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as you can get in the dumb old chemical rocket. So Friedman's Law, technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. The future is not an extrapolation of the past. You have to change how you do things. Your computer is not just a better slide rule. It really uses different physics. Different now, physics. within the atmosphere, I would expect an entirely different mode of propulsion because the circumstances are different. High pressure, high gravitational field, problems with drag and things like that. So I think a magneto-aerodynamic propulsion system would do nicely, similar to the electromagnetic submarine that was successfully tested um, 40 years ago by Dr. Stuart Way of Westinghouse. What I really think is that alien vehicles work by techniques about which we know nothing because we're so primitive. Look, we've had advanced technology uh, for 100 years or so, first flight 103 years ago, you know, not very long ago. And almost everything that we think of as advanced technology is, dates from that time. But you go down the street 39 light years to Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli, two stars you can't see from here. You've got to go below the equator to see. They're not only the closest to each other pair of sun-like stars in our neighborhood, an eighth of a light year apart, 34 times closer than we are, the sun is to the next star over. But they're a billion years older than the sun. A billion. So if they're only a few hundred years more advanced than we are, they know a heck of a lot that we don't know. We are ignorant. We are not the crowns of creation that the SETI people would have you believe we are. Our status is much more akin to that of the... Uh, Oh, the gorillas in the nature preserves in Africa who have no idea what's going around outside.
right there, nature preserve. We're primitive. Uh, I would intuitively agree with that, Stanton. I think that human beings' vanity is perhaps our greatest weakness and might very well be our downfall. Tell me what your thoughts are about... Uh, I fully believe that any technologically, technologically advanced civilization would understand that all the energy needs that they will ever have in their development as a civilization are well served by a local star. What are your thoughts about an idea that I've thought about, which is using the gravitational field of a star as essentially a, a, an assistance to propulsion to be able to get between stars? Well, of course. Look, cosmic freeloading is a way of life for all space, uh, aerospace engineers. Um, we use it all the time. Uh, it's one of the many reasons that the ancient academics and fossilized physicists so often get it wrong about space travel. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. The uh, Cassini spacecraft, which is out there at Saturn, checking out Enceladus and Titan, you know, all kinds of wonderful things going on out there. Wish I was there. We launched it in closer to the sun. It went by Venus and got a free kick. Be in the right place at the right time, and off you go. Came back past the Earth and got another free kick. Went past Jupiter, where it got a third free kick and wound up at Saturn. All the Pioneer and Viking spacecraft, all of these use cosmic freeloading. When we go to the moon, we use it in several different ways. We launch to the east near the equator. That's a free thousand miles an hour. Uh, when we get approach the moon, we uh, let the moon do some of the work to bring us in. It's you know if you shoot at the right time, and fortunately the uh, moon's pretty good at keeping its uh, schedule in orbiting around the Earth. It pulls us in. Now when we come back, you could say, well, you got to fire a retro rocket. No, you don't. you got to be smart. Get the angle right and let the atmosphere, which is there after all, mm -hmm. you don't need to put it there, to slow us down. Remember Apollo 13? Mm -hmm. uh, you got to be smart. That's more important than being powerful. you got to get the angle right. Too steep, you dig a hole in the ground, and too shallow, bye-bye uh, Earth. So we use cosmic freeloading. We would use not only stars, but find a convenient black hole, but don't get too close. And so engineers get things done, they don't worry about all the ways that you can't get a particular objective done. And one of my favorite examples of this is Dr. Campbell, a Canadian astronomer back in 1941, did a study about going to the moon. He was upset by all this science fiction nonsense about going to the moon, the old pulp magazines and stuff. He did a, published a scientific paper in which he calculated the required initial launch weight of a chemical rocket able to get a man to the moon and back. That's a legitimate question. And he came out with the bottom line that the initial launch weight would have to be a million, million tons. Ooh. Now, even for me, that's too big. But look more carefully at what he assumed. Single-stage rocket, bad idea. Limit of 1G acceleration, terrible idea. Got to fire a retro rocket, but of course every pound of fuel you use at the end had to be launched from the Earth, slow down at the moon, launch from the moon, only off a factor of 300 million. So making stupid assumptions is not how you go about solving technological problems. All right, let's move into some more of the interesting enigmas of the UFO field. And now we have a background that you want to subject all of the things that you have read about to rigorous scientific study. 
And one of the most intriguing issues, and maybe it's almost like a smoking gun if it's real, are these documents which we call MJ-12 that have gotten a lot of pros and cons over the years. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Before I ask you to give us the background of what they are and how they came to be received, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to be spending an evening with Stanton Friedman, UFO investigator, nuclear physicist, and we'll be asking him some very tough questions as we progress this evening. If you want to learn more of what he does, if you click on the Stanton Friedman link at thepowercast.com you can actually get a reference to a site where you can get a discount on some of his books or just go to stantonfriedman.com in any case, MJ-12 what are they what are those documents and how were they discovered or received? Well, it's a much bigger question than most people want to lump them all together Oh, here's an MJ-12 document, there's an MJ-12 document, if this one is phony that one must be Nobody ever says it the other way around, I guess. Well, some people do. A roll of film was received in December 1984 by Jamie Chandray, with whom I had been working when I lived on the West Coast and who was working with Bill Moore. Bill Moore and I did the early research on the Roswell incident, but I moved back east here in 1980. Here comes a roll of film in the mail in which there were two sets of eight negatives each, top secret slash magic, Briefing document for President-elect Dwight David Eisenhower, dated 18 November 1952. Now, that's two weeks after the election that Ike had won, but a couple of months before he became president. So he was literally the president-elect. And it's supposedly a briefing in which it is noted that uh, the United States recovered a crash-flying saucer near Roswell. There were alien bodies. A group called Operation Majestic 12 was authorized by President Truman to uh, Secretary of Defense James Forrestal in September of 1947 to proceed onward with this study, which was accountable only to the President of the United States. Named the members of the group, two Army, two Navy, two Air Force, five scientists, and the Secretary of Defense. And they were concerned about the intelligence aspects, the technological aspects, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what are these guys, what, where are they from, et cetera, et cetera. And there w- it was included this memo from Truman to Forrestal from 1947. And it was a list of attachments, and that was the first one. We don't have the other seven. And then, you know, you look at this thing and you say, hmm, interesting, and these were all real people, all right, but are the documents genuine? Mm-hmm. And it turns out, you start checking carefully, that uh, all these guys were dead. The last one having died only a couple months before we got the roll of film. That was interesting. How convenient, the skeptics would say, and the believers would say as well, how inconvenient. You know? Nobody to ask, were you part of this group? And then Bill and Jamie, Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray, had been in touch with insiders, Air Force intelligence types, 
the film was uh, in an envelope that was postmarked Albuquerque. Uh, there was no return address, but they had been in touch with guys at Albuquerque, home of Kirtland Air Force Base, who at that time was the largest single employer in the state of New Mexico, uh, with all kinds of fancy classified stuff going on there. And the question is, how do you validate such a thing? Well, we keep working, we check on the people, we got some strange postcards that strongly indicated we ought to be going to Washington, D.C., and Bill and Jamie went and found I had discovered that there was declassification going on at the National Archives of some important record groups. They went there, they stumbled across a, a memo from Robert Cutler, Ike's National Security Advisor, to General Nathan Twining, one of these members of MJ-12, and uh, it mentions NSC, National Security Council, MJ-12 Special Studies Group. And so that's the only original document we have. Now, we did a lot of work on these, and one of the things that was very important to me, one of the guys mentioned as part of this group was Dr. Donald Howard Menzel, professor of astronomy at Harvard. Well, you don't need a fancy security clearance to teach astronomy at Harvard. And Menzel was known to be a total skeptic about UFOs. He'd written three anti-UFO books, given numerous papers, made all strong claims. And so I got a little research grant, went to Harvard, had to get permission, written permission from three people, different people, to look at Menzel's papers. And there was a real breakthrough. I discovered, much to my astonishment, because I didn't like him when he was alive, <laughs> uh, that he had been on the inside, had a top-secret ultra-clearance with the CIA, had a longer continuous association with the National Security Agency of anybody in the country. He said to Jack Kennedy, uh, 30 years with them and their Navy predecessor, and all kinds of classified work. And that was a real eye-opener. Well, if we uh, point out that Dr. Menzel actually lectured as a debunker of UFOs yes. and wrote books against... Great the belief system in UFOs, so this is certainly interesting to have this guy's name turn up on this document. Yeah, my first thought was obviously this is a fraud, because how could Menzel be part of a group that knew about bodies and Roswell and all the rest of that stuff? Once I went there and checked it out, and nobody else had, and I published an article in International UFO Reporter and stuff, to many people's consternation, <laughs> that opened up the possibility, gee, there's really maybe something to this. So in the course of my travels, I think I've heard all the anti-MG-12 arguments, and I should point out, the market got flooded with other documents over the next several years. A guy named Tim Cooper in California would get stuff in his post office box, stuff in the mail, somebody dropped off stuff at the house. There's a whole slew of these documents. Unfortunately, they, they were in my gray basket for quite a while. That is, I'm not sure. Let's, let's see. And then I discovered there, there were some things that didn't make sense to me. And I talked to archivists. And one name that was mentioned was Albert C. Wiedemeyer, a general. And I couldn't figure out why he would be connected, and neither could the archivists at the Marshall Library, with an MJ-12 project because his specialty was China. Hmm. And in talking to the archivist, he mentioned, well, why don't you look at his book? I can't see why he would be involved with that either. 
So I go over to the University of New Brunswick Library and called. They had the book. I went and got it. And in the book, I discovered three original documents which had been emulated to produce the so-called MJ-12 documents. That is, retyped, few words changed, handwritten material Xeroxed or scanned either way to produce a genuine-looking document that was baloney. And then I looked at a lot more searching now that I knew the modus operandi of the faker and found several more original documents. And they all had strange mistakes in them, too. For example, the guy took one of these Wiedermeyer documents and replaced his name with General Twinings. In uh, the original one, it says, when you're finished in China, go to Korea. To Twining, who's supposedly being sent to look at the uh, crash saucers, when you're finished in New Mexico, go to Sandia. But Sandia is in New Mexico. And there were a whole bunch of other factual misstatements. I discussed these in my uh, new final chapter of Top Secret Magic, and I have, uh, I'm at odds with some people in the field who want to accept all those documents, but hey, I got to go where the facts are. So I'm convinced that we have a set of real documents, and I've talked to intelligence people about this kind of thing, and I'm told it's standard practice. When good stuff gets out, you flood the market with garbage. People will know that it's garbage, and they will assume that the other stuff, which is completely independent, came from a different place and all the rest of that, is also garbage. Governments get by with this kind of crap all the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm convinced that the original documents, there's the Eisenhower briefing document, there's the Truman Forrestal letter, there's the Cutler Twining memo, and SOM 101, which was another roll of film from Wisconsin, New Mexico, sent to Don Berliner, the co-author of my book, Crash at Corona, which he didn't even look at for months and didn't tell me about for more months after that. It's instructions as to military guys. What do you do if you come across wreckage of a saucer or an alien body and stuff like that? You know, you screw on the lid of the box and, you, you know, and typical military stuff. And I think uh, that that's probably a genuine uh, document as well. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff out there that I say thumbs down. <laughs> For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate 
awaits. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's, That's Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. In the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Stanton Friedman, spending an evening with us to talk about a lot of subjects related to UFOs or flying saucers. Assuming, for the sake of argument, that MJ-12 documents, the ones you feel are real, are genuine, what do they tell us? Well, they tell us, uh, to summarize, really, they tell us that since 1947, the United States government has had in its possession the wreckage of at least one flying saucer, several alien bodies, considerable research dealing with, you know, what's going on with these guys, and that it's considered of extraordinary importance to the security of the United States. They tell us that the government has been lying to us for lots of years, that they use really outstanding people. This was an all-star cast, the MJ-12 group, but Twining went on to be, he was head of the Air Material Command at Wright Field at that time, but he went on to be Chief of Staff of the Air Force, became Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. We're not talking about dinks here. And three of the first uh, directors, the first three directors of Central Intelligence were part of this group. Uh, and the fourth one replaced Forrestal after Forrestal's untimely death. I suppose all deaths are untimely, but anyway. <laughs> so they tell us that it was considered of great significance. These were people who had clout, you know, their own airplanes, pilots. Uh, they could do things. They all had high-level security clearances, including Menzel. One of the other scientists, for example, was uh, head of the national uh, NACA, which became NASA. Uh, Dr. Vannevar Bush was one of the members. He had been head of the Office of Scientific Research and Development. Uh, these were outstanding people. And I, I discuss each of them in my book, Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-Z. And I should stress that from a security viewpoint, you have documents that are confidential, secret, top secret, and then top secret code word. And that code word can be ultra, umbra, magic, whatever. And these limit access very greatly. And one of the problems I've had over the years is people don't seem to understand that just having a top secret clearance does not give you access to all top secret documents. You have to have a need to know. Without the need to know, uh, there's no go. You don't see. <laughs> you know. Who has a need to know today, Stan? Who has access to this information today? Well, I, I don't know. Nobody sends me classified reports. But <laughs> now, uh, I should say this, though. Considering that the first of actual four directors of Central Intelligence were involved in this group, uh, considering that we have such huge, uh, what do I call them, intelligence agencies, as good a term as any, 
as the National Security Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, Air Force Office of Scientific uh, Investigation, the Navy Research Lab. You got all these guys out there whose job it is to deal with highly classified material. The annual black budget that is not directly under congressional control is now estimated at well over $40 billion. In 1996, it was admitted by the director of Central Intelligence that, because of a court suit, actually, uh, that his budget that year, black budget, was $26.6 billion. So it's the intelligence community. And remember how intelligence works. Think of one of those big old western wagon wheels without the rim. you got a hub, you got a bunch of spokes, but no connection between the spokes except through the hub at the middle. And so there are many different kinds of work that would go on. You have your air defense commands. They monitor the skies for, quote, uncorrelated targets, unquote. So they pick up uh, behavioral characteristics of flying saucers. You have your indi individual pilots who chase them. Let's not forget that in 1952 there were orders issued from the Air Force to pilots of interceptors to shoot down UFOs if they refuse to land when instructed to do so. And General Roger Ramey, by this time a uh, major general, same guy who was involved in Roswell several years earlier, uh, Ramey admitted in an article that didn't appear in the Washington Post or the New York Times, but is in a newspaper, and I do have it, that hundreds of planes had been scrambled after UFOs. He didn't say a few. He didn't say several. Hundreds of scramblings had been done. So you got those guys who monitor, measure uh, electronic characteristics, all this sort of thing. You got the guys who work on the wreckage. This is all collected together in, in the middle. But the spokes, the intelligence wheels, if you will, don't talk to each other. It all goes into some kind of central agency. And, you know, one, one of the big things here is many people think governments can't keep secrets. Oh, come on, they couldn't keep the secret all those years. Well, you know, the tail end of last year, the National Reconnaissance Office, which most people had never heard of, budget much bigger than the CIA, incidentally, yeah. casually mentioned that they had launched seven poppy satellites, P-O-P-P-Y. Their job was to monitor Soviet ships at sea, their electronics, their communications, their radar, etc. These were launched between 1962 and 1971. These are very sophisticated satellites, sometimes costing a half a billion dollars each. The first public mention was last year, 2005. When were they launched? 62 to 71. Loads of people involved in those, not only launching them, but of course designing and testing uh, the equipment that went on board the satellites and then getting the feedback from them. I mean, that's the point of putting them up. Now, the Navy Research Lab admitted in 1995, they bragged about the fact that they had launched the Corona Spy satellites. The first 12 were failures. The 13th worked in 1960, mind you, and gave us more information about Soviet radar, electronics, etc., than all the U-2 flights that had preceded it. First public mention, 1995. So, well, one that really bugs me is the fact that 
In 2001, the U.S. government called together a whole host of relatives of 166 military guys who had been on board reconnaissance aircraft that were downed by the Soviets or the Chinese or the Koreans during missions close to the borders. I don't know whether they were over the borders or not. That's not my job. <laughs> 166 men were lost. The first time the people, relatives, brothers, sons, fathers of these guys found out what had happened was in 2001. And these events took place in the late 40s, early 50s. Of course, we shot down some Russian planes, too. We don't want to talk about that. I guess not. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We should talk about the fact that during the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we're spending an evening with Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, UFO investigator. If you go to stantonfriedman.com, you could read some more of his writings. And we have a special link at thepowercast.com, our own site, thepowercast.com, where you can click on it and get a special discount on some of Stan's books. Let me ask you a question to back up a little bit on MJ-12. Yep. The original documents came on a roll of film. Any idea who sent them? Somebody at, in Albuquerque is all I can say. Now, whether that was D Richard Doty or one of those other people connected with him, he's denied it. We don't know. It's the documents that matter. And remember that the way the law, and it's uh, probably going to be changed, unfortunately, the way the law works in the United States, possession, unauthorized possession of a classified document is not against the law. Uh, dissemination of a classified document by somebody who has a need to know and a right to have it, but giving that document or that information to somebody who doesn't have the clearance and the need to know is against the law. So the guy at risk is the guy who sent it, not the guy who receives it. Now, in England, incidentally, uh, it's against the law to have possession of a classified document, unauthorized possession. So I don't know who sent them. I wish I did. But I can understand why that person isn't running around, jumping up and down. Now, you'd expect he would if it was fake, wouldn't you? Gotcha! As you know, these documents have been quite controversial. Some people out there have been saying they've got to be fake. They're fake, and they've given various reasons, and obviously it's Yeah, but I've dealt with all those reasons in my book. I know you have, and I know you have, and I think what I'd like you to do here is we can't have you read all 5,000 or 10,000 words describing it, but maybe with a short three- or four-minute answer, maybe give the broad overview of why you feel they're genuine. Well, what I've done is try to start off neutral. Maybe they're real, maybe they're not. Let's see if we can find out anything that uh, would give us an answer one way or another. Uh, for example, one of the challenges, Philip Glass challenged me on the typeface on the Cutler Twining memo. Offered me $100 for every genuine memo with the same size and style pica type. They should have been elite type, and he had nine documents from the National Security Council to establish that. Well, uh, after I sent him 14, he set a limit of 10, unfortunately, or I could have made a lot of money. <laughs> 
after I sent him 14 documents, genuine, came right from the uh, Eisenhower Library, to which he had never been, mind you. And I started by sending him 20 from my files. They didn't meet all of his criteria. Uh, only two did, but I was going to the Eisenhower Library anyway. I finally sent him uh, 14 more, and gee whiz, he paid me my 1000 I sent him an invoice. He paid me my $1,000. <laughs> told everybody about challenging me, nobody about paying me. It was a stupid argument. There were 250,000 pages of National Security Council material. To generalize from nine to 250,000 is, uh, frankly, absurd. That same document has a typed security marking, top secret restricted. Oh, and everybody and his brother said, oh, that wasn't in use. The government said it wasn't in use, blah, blah, blah. Clearly, this document's a fraud. Well, the General Accounting Office, in its efforts to find out about Roswell for Congressman Schiff, visited all kinds of facilities. And on page 80 of their 400-plus page report on all the stuff they did, they noted that while they were looking through certain files up through top secret and in the right time frame, they didn't find out anything about Roswell, but they found several instances of the use of top secret restricted, even though they had been told, Majestic 12 in parenthesis, that it was not in use at that time. I tried to get copies, but of course they were still classified, so I couldn't. But what they said is good enough for me. One of the objections from a milit former military man, still connected with the military, was that the Eisenhower briefing, it says that the top briefing officer, Admiral Roscoe H. Hillencoder, MJ-1, well, he was the director of Central Intelligence in 1947, but he was only a rear admiral. Ha-ha! Gotcha! However, when I was at the Eisenhower Library, I found that it was standard practice to use generic ranks for people when there was a mixed group of civilians and military. And I brought back a number of examples because it was interesting, the uh, Ike's, well, staff secretary, a man named Goodpaster, he was a brigadier general. He used to write notes at these meetings, and he'd list the attendees using only generic ranks, including for himself, General Goodpaster. He'd sign it, Brigadier General Goodpaster. And because I was there at the Eisenhower Library, I could look up all these other people and see that almost invariably they weren't four stars, even though they were called Admiral or General, generic ranking. So I asked the archivist, standard practice, no big deal. Another complaint goes down the tubes, and there were a whole bunch of these kinds of things where people hadn't done their homework. Well, a good one, the date on the front of the Eisenhower briefing documents, 18 November, comma, 1952. Oh, that comma proves it's a fake document, somebody said. An expert on government documents, uh, because it violates the government style manual. Well, when you go to the archives, you find, I found one folder had seven different date formats. I found the use of that very same date format in writings of some of the members of the MJ-12 group. Another complaint hits the dust. And it's that way all the way down the line. Well, one guy said, the absence of a top-secret control number on these documents proves that they're fake because all top-secret documents have to have a top-secret control number. Well, you start checking, and again, I talk to archivists, and I go by. I had already published two top-secret documents that I, formerly that I know were legitimate because I got them at the archives that didn't have control numbers. And the archivist at the uh, Eisenhower Library told me that we have lots, he put it in writing, 
we have many top secret documents that don't have top secret control numbers. The archivist at the Marshall Archives told me, Stan, if they had to use top secret control numbers on everything, they'd still be fighting World War II. <laughs> uh, there's a difference, in other words, between a 20-page report of which 20 copies are prepared, which would, of course, have to have control numbers, and a one-page eyes-only document from General A to General B, where they didn't always put top-secret control numbers on them. All the way down the line that the objections don't stand up. Now, obviously, MJ-12 is considered in relationship to the Roswell crash, and I presume that you accept the Roswell situation as genuine. What reasons do you have for that? I'm convinced that, indeed, the United States government recovered uh, two crash flying saucers in New Mexico in July 1947. The reasons are very straightforward, detailed, expensive, extensive investigation. The testimony of people like not only Major Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer for the most elite military group in the world, the 509s, they dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 45, two more in Operation Crossroads in 46. General Thomas, well, retired General Thomas Jefferson DuBose, he was the chief of staff to the head of the 8th Air Force at the time. I managed to locate him while he was alive, of course, and he told me he took the call from his boss's boss, telling him to get the press off their backs at the time, to send some of that wreckage up here with one of your colonel couriers today, and I don't want you ever to talk about it, not even with your buddy Roger Ramey. That's an order. Do I need to put it in writing? No, sir. When a two-star general tells a then colonel what to do, they know they knew each other, uh, he does it. He doesn't say, well, I don't think that's a good idea, General. You know, they tell you to jump, you say how high. The testimony of Walter Hoff, the guy who put out the press release. The testimony of neighbors of the rancher, of the son of the rancher, of Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., who just got back a few months ago from a year's service as a colonel in the United States Army, a helicopter pilot, a flight surgeon. He's a medical doctor. He handled pieces of the wreckage. It's testimony from people like that that gets me going. And uh, I've spent an awful lot of time with an awful lot of people. Bill Moore and I tracked down 62 people in the two years after I first heard from Major Jesse Marcel. And I was referred to him by somebody else. He didn't come running to me. So if they look at my book, Crash at Corona, and the papers that I've put on my website and a paper like uh, Critiquing the Roswell Critics, there again, I hear all these arguments, and when I look at them carefully and honestly, I find none of them stand up. There's a lot of false information flying around, like always people came running to me, which is absolute nonsense. What more am I supposed to do? And of course, we're, we've raced the undertaker and we've lost. Most of the first-hand witnesses are gone now, but I talk to them. They can look at the recollections of Roswell videos. 105 minutes testimony from 27 first-hand witnesses. They can judge for themselves. So the thing that strikes me about this, Stanton, is that you have all these people who have gone on the record, have, have made statements about their experiences, these first-hand witnesses. People try to debunk these, you know, skeptics debunk these people, and I wonder if these people really went through these experiences, you know, or if they didn't, why would they make this up? What benefit would there be to, to come clean with the public and say, you know, we were part of this episode. We handled evidence. We saw these things. I've always wondered, why would these people say this if, you know, the ramifications are they're going to be ridiculed by people. They're going to be marginalized. 
I've always wondered about that. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Before we have the answer, let me tell you, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're spending an evening with Stanton Friedman. And if you want to know more about what he does, go to stantonfriedman.com or click on the link from thepowercast.com, our homepage. Stan, I know you're champing at the bit with the answer, so go ahead. They have nothing to be gained. Uh, mm-hmm. This is not to say that I believe everything anybody says. Uh, Frank Kaufman was a witness that was highly touted by somebody else, and after I heard his story, I asked lots of questions and found there was no reason to believe him. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of those. But the original witnesses, remember, I talked to most of these people before there were TV cameras around uh, checking on their testimony. They had nothing to gain. You know, people think, you know, like you get paid for being on radio and television. Now, generally speaking, you don't. I mean, you know, you know what you guys are paying me to be on the show. <laughs> Actually, the check is in the mail. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, what I'm saying is, uh, the, the better question perhaps is, why are some people so virulently opposed to Roswell? And you can say it's because they don't want to admit that they've been wrong about this subject, that they've taken such a strong stand about. The noisy negativists are almost vicious in what they say about these things. They don't do their homework. They don't talk to the witnesses. They don't view the evidence. They listen to other noisy negativists. It's, it's an item of, it's a cachet. I'm a debunker. All this stuff is garbage. And they know they'll get a better press, really, than the believers will most of the time. Let me ask you about a point that might be sore with you, gathered from some of the writings you have. The book, The Day After Roswell, Philip Corso, supposedly someone who had all these great experiences in the Army, work with presidents, etc., etc., and he was co-author of this book where he says that some of our major scientific developments, such as integrated circuits and night goggles, etc., etc., came from alien technology. I gather that there's some of this stuff that you don't buy. Well, that's right. I've got an article on my website about that. I met uh, Mr. Corso. He's a decent old man. I I don't have any, you know personal animosity toward him didn't while he was alive and certainly not after he died but remember he supposedly did this in 1961 when he was under general trudeau at the army foreign technology division which unlike the air force foreign technology division had a very minimal staff Uh, there were two people in the according to the uh, roster in 1961, and Corso was the junior officer. Supposedly, he's given a, a filing cabinet full of Roswell wreckage, and he put that out to industry, and they figured out all these wonderful new developments. Well, what the heck was the Air Force Foreign Technology Division, which we know got some of this stuff, because a lot of it was carried to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, FTD. Back in 1947, what were they doing all the time? The, the book lacks citations, it lacks references, it lacks an index, the integrated circuits, uh, there was a guy who got a Nobel Prize in physics for that work done in 58 before Corso was involved with this stuff. So I've 
trying to, it's an imaginative recreation that went well beyond the data. And, you know, uh, his story about seeing an alien body at Fort Riley in Kansas uh, on July 6th, 1947, just doesn't stand up. And so uh, that we have learned some stuff, I don't doubt. But that Corso's description of things is an accurate rendition, say, like seeing a body in Fort Riley, Kansas on uh, July 6th. I have real trouble with that because, A, the body would have certainly been accompanied by a guard. You don't send things like that around without continuous 24-hour guarding. Uh, guys driving nuclear weapons around don't leave it out the truck out in front of the restaurant and go in to eat. You know, that's not how you do things. And it would have been a tremendous violation of security for him to have been allowed to see that body, especially to open a closed crate. I mean, this is a no unlikely. Yeah, and it's very hard to imagine how the body got there since July 6th was the day when uh, the rancher came into Roswell and uh, where Jesse Marcel and uh, Cabot, the counterintelligence corps guy, went out to the ranch that night and didn't come back until the 7th. How could he be handling bodies in, and why uh, by ground to Fort Riley instead of by plane from New Mexico to Wright Field? It doesn't make any sense. So I'm a skeptic, and my article, I have an article on my website which goes into the details. Let's segue for a few moments here into some more recent stuff. David, you had some questions. Stan, uh, we've been talking about the historical aspects of UFOs going back 40, 50 years. What about the last 10 or 15 years? Look, I get 20 pages a month of clippings of UFO sightings all over the world, but I don't get involved too much in following day-to-day uh, another UFO light in the sky. There, you can read the MUFON journal. You can read what's going on. I'm looking at the bigger picture. I'm concerned about the cover-up. I'm concerned about the government's role in all of this, about Roswell, about MJ-12. Uh, I think Mexico, unfortunately, on some occasions, uh, Jaime Massan, who's a nice guy, and was responsible for getting a lot of people to send them clips by treating the subject fairly, which is something we could use more of up here, mm -hmm. uh, also tended to get too excited about a lot of things that he shouldn't have been excited about. Mr. Reed's story, for example, uh, among many. So I think there's plenty going on all over the place. I think some of it probably is balloons and other things. You know, in England they sometimes release a whole bunch of balloons when there's a big event, a public event, and they look rather spectacular, but there's plenty going on. I want the good military data. That's what we're not getting. The guys with the radar in the airplanes chasing the UFOs, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's, and the guy on the ground with the radar. There are cases like that. That's why I refer to the old scientific studies, because there is a solid background. Jim McDonald's paper to Congress, 41 separate cases that couldn't be identified that were thoroughly investigated. Outstanding piece of work. Along those same contemporary lines, are there any contemporary crash episodes that seem compelling to you in any way? There have been some over the years that have got into my gray basket, but, but that's about the best I can say. It's very hard to dig into these cases. We're lucky with Roswell. Uh, the Vargina case in Brazil is one several years ago, and I happened to be down there when the first public discussion was held, and Dr. Roger Lear has been there as well to talk to some of the people. Uh, that's less than 10 years ago. But uh, other than that, I don't know of anywhere we've got good, solid evidence. The government's much better at covering things up than they used to. What, what people have to remember is the key rule of security is you can't tell your friends without telling your enemies. Uh, they listen to the news. They read the papers, uh, et cetera. 
So for people who think, gee, they're lying to us, well, one reason for lying to us is make sure our enemies don't find out what's going on. Do you really want Osama bin Laden to have access to the uh, best technology we've gleaned from saucers, whether current or, you know, 30 years ago? I don't think so. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to continue our evening with Stanton T. Friedman. Go to stantonfriedman.com for more stuff from him about his books, articles he's written, etc. David, you're champing at the bit. I can just feel it. I think that um, the fact that Stanton has had so many years of experience in looking at this data and doing real hard research on it brings me to want to ask, some big questions. And Stan, I don't want to immediately put you on the spot here, but given everything you've looked at, given that it seems that you've come to a conclusion that there is indeed a conspiracy happening, I have to wonder if indeed these visitations are occurring, what is the agenda? Why is Earth so interesting? What do you think about this? Well, we don't know how interesting it is compared to all other planets that are being evaluated, investigated, reviewed, uh, whatever. You see, that's one of the problems. How come we're visited so often? I don't have any international or (laughs) intragalactic travel guide (laughs) that tells me how often other places are visited. I think we do, however, need to take into account uh, a couple of things. One... I make the assumption, one of the very few I make about aliens, is that any advanced civilization would be concerned about its own survival and security. That seems to be a characteristic of all the civilizations we know anything about. Self-preservation. Yeah. That being the case, you have to keep tabs on the primitives in the neighborhood, but only close tabs on those primitives showing signs of being able to bother you. You check them out, and, you know, if you look at the history of the last couple thousand years, you know, it's an agrarian, non-industrial society, and then pretty soon, oh, there are steel mills, there are ships crossing the ocean, and then pretty soon there are factories, and there are three signs that would tell any spy in the neighborhood that, uh uh-oh, these idiots are about to be able to visit us. At the end of World War II, three signs that would tell any visiting alien that we should be of concern. One was nuclear weapons, one was rockets, which obviously weren't being used to deliver the mail with, and powerful electronics, radar in particular, as the epitome of what can be done when you start understanding what happens so that you can produce microwaves and all kinds of other stuff. Mm -hmm. You could say, isn't it amazing? Isn't it a coincidence? At the only place in the world where you could study all three of these, nuclear weapons, rocketry, and powerful radar, was southeastern New Mexico in July 1947. Trinity site, first nuclear explosion, grounds of the White Sand Missile Range. That's where we were firing our captured German V-2s, and that's where we had our best radar to track the missiles, which often didn't go where they were supposed to go. 
So uh, I don't find that a coincidence, in other words. And admittedly, when I was in England, I had a, an English astronomer very haughtily say, well, they could have gone to the Soviet Union. I had to point out that the Russians didn't test their first A-bomb until August 1949. But when you look at it from that viewpoint, then you suddenly realize that one of the reasons, and I have a paper where I give uh, 26 different reasons for coming to planet Earth, they're broadcasters with a weekly show, Idiocy in the Boondocks. You know, that's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, They've heard our show. They've definitely heard our show. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing is that when you boil it all down and skip all the funny reasons for coming here, I mean, why do people fly to Chicago? Well, it's not one reason or ten reasons. There are a hundred reasons or a thousand sure. I think the, the one word that comes to mind is quarantine. I think from an alien viewpoint, we're a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. We tend to forget, we younger people, in quotes, that in World War II, we earthlings killed 50 million of our own kind. Now, some say 60, but, you know, it doesn't matter for our purpose. We destroyed 1,700 cities. Isn't this a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare? Cool. Look around the world. We, we don't have a planetary outlook on anything. The rich get richer. I mean, the United States has 5% of the population and uses 25% of the oil. Uh, there are going to be a lot of people unhappy about that. So what I'm saying is I expect that there are history books in the local galactic neighborhood library which shows what happens when societies get to the point where they have enormous destructive power but don't have a sociological frame of reference in which this can be used for the benefit of their people. I've asked a lot of people, if you were an alien, would you want us out there? And the answer is invariably no. So what I'm saying is, it seems to me that the galaxy has situations in which the more advanced civilizations make sure that the primitive ones don't break loose and take their brand of friendship, everybody else calls it hostility, out to bother the people, the other guys in the neighborhood. And, you know, we are a primitive society. Every single day, 30,000 children died needlessly of preventable disease and starvation. And yet we collectively on this planet this year will spend just under a trillion dollars on things military. That would feed all those kids many times over. So I think that the, they must have departments of... How to deal with uh, sick planets, if you will. <laughs> well, you know, look, look around. We have the capability of doing better, but we're not. And have things gotten any better? Have the uh, large-scale killing of people stopped? I mean, look around the planet as we speak. It's not a friendly place. An explosion over there kills 40 people, 50 people over there killed innocent kids and so forth. We aren't doing much about the natural disasters. Look at the response to Katrina as an example of that. And so greed seems to be number one. So if I step back from all that and say I can understand why would we would be of interest to all the alien civilizations in the neighborhood, uh, the way a plague is of concern. You know, we're talking about the uh, bird flu epidemic and things like that. I don't, another, what I'm trying to say is, I don't see them coming here to help us, to save us. What good would it do? Now, you could take one of, one of my 26 reasons for coming here is that this is the devil's island of this corner of the galaxy. They dumped all the bad boys and girls here, and that's why we're so nasty to each other. But that's a rather jaundiced viewpoint. So 
I think that they must know that some societies make it through this stage and others don't. Now, some people say, but why here? Is there anything special about Earth? Well, yes, there are several special things about Earth. Uh, one, for example, we're the densest planet in the solar system. A cubic foot of Earth weighs more than a cubic foot of any other planet. I didn't say the heaviest. I didn't say the biggest. I said the densest. And I'm not talking about the people either. Uh, <laughs> that being the case, that means from our studies of spectral data from the stars all over the place, that there's more heavy metals here. What do I mean by heavy metals? Lead? Uh, Lead's a lightweight. Look at uranium and tungsten and rhenium and osmium and platinum and rhodium and all those other good guys. Uh, osmium is twice as dense as lead, for example. And I mention these only because they have peculiar characteristics. We know that they're not common in the neighborhood, and they may have been stealing these for a long time or gathering them for a long time. Look how many people moved around because of gold. That's sure. one of those dense metals, incidentally. But what I'm saying is motivating large chunks of society, are, there can be all kinds of things. Uh, and going for the gold is one of them. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Let me interrupt and tell everybody that you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have time for just a few more minutes to spend with Stanton Friedman, UFO investigator, nuclear physicist. Go to StantonFriedman.com. And if you go to our homepage at theparacast.com, we've got a link there. You click on it, you get a special deal on his books, Save Some Money, and they're all worth it. Lots of great research. David, you got a couple of questions you want to approach Stan with before we let him go. Stan just brought up something fascinating, this idea of the interest in gold, uh, another very heavy metal, which another guest that we had on the show recently pointed out, he felt was one of the reasons that there might have been visitations going back many, many hundreds, thousands of years, that these creatures were actually using humans to harvest gold. And that gold has unique properties and things like electronics that would make it compelling to harvest on the planet. What's your thoughts? Well, that's certainly a possibility. I presume you're talking about uh, Sitchin and people who uh, go with him. Um, look, we look around, not only I, I, I mentioned the characteristics of the Earth, uh, there are also asteroids in our neighborhood, which are loaded with uh, metals, nickel and iron and so forth. And if you've got good space travel, you grab yourself an asteroid uh, every once in a while. It's a lot easier than mining stuff out of the ground. But there may be other things here, too. And 
the kicker here is we are ignorant. For example, 100 years ago, the primary use for uranium was to provide yellow glazes for pottery. Nobody did anything with zirconium or titanium, and yet the whole nuclear navy is dependent on zirconium alloys because of their special anti-corrosion and properties and uh, low nuclear cross-sections. Uh, titanium was not something we did anything with, but now we have a whole titanium industry. There are biological things on this planet. We have an uh, undifferentiated planet. I mean, you can have a herd of cattle here that all have the same father with artificial insemination and stuff. But people, boy, does our DNA vary from person to person and type to type. So if you're doing a survey, suppose you're graduate students checking on genetic uh, characteristics of earthlings. Holy cow, that'll keep a lot of students busy for a long time. Because if you're looking for diseases, for example, some diseases are fairly rare. Uh, hemophilia, 1 in 10,000 males. you got to pick up a heck of a lot of specimens before you find one, don't you? Sure. So we have to step back and realize that we're ignorant. I mean, everybody knows that already. Just look how we behave. But still, there may be gold certainly is special. Uranium is special. But there are other things that are special here, too. The rare earths, for example, that we call them rare earths, but they're vitally important. Electronics industry and the nuclear industry, dysprosium, gadolinium, erbium, lanthanum. Most people have never heard of these things. But... They're extremely valuable on a per pound basis. Look at vitamin B12. Oh, look at the stuff that you might be able to gather from the bottom of the ocean in terms of the sea creatures and all kinds of biologicals that are in them. There's a lot of stuff here. Now, the ocean is an interesting place because most of the planet's covered with water and because people have suggested mining the bottom of the ocean, you know. Over a million carats of diamonds were pulled out of a place where the river from Africa goes into the ocean. The point here is we know very little about the history of our planet, the characteristics of our planet. Uh, You know, Schliemann discovered Troy about 1875 or so. He figured out where it ought to be based on the, quote, myths, unquote, of the Iliad and the Odyssey and stuff. Dig here, guys. And he was rich. He could afford to pay guys to dig down 75 feet. Now, while he was doing that, the historian said, there was no Troy, that's all a myth. Whoops, they found Troy. How much of the planet have we looked at 75 feet down? For all we know, over the last billion years, there could have been 20 different civilizations here, or 50 for that matter, that thrived, that dealt on an interstellar basis with other civilizations in the neighborhood. We don't know. And I I like the business of the Devil's Island of this corner of the galaxy when we remember that both Australia and Georgia were first settled by prisoners. Absolutely. And look what we ended up with here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what we need to do is to be much less arrogant, to be much more aware of our ignorance about ourselves, no less our visitors, and also to recognize that the striving for power seems to be a major characteristic of uh, earthlings, at least earthlings at the top of the, uh, the political ladder. None of these guys want to give up power. And as soon as you start calling yourself an earthling, you've got to give up a lot of power. Yeah. And that's something that fundamentally human nature at this time in our history, we yearn for power and we want to keep it at any cost. You don't need to look far to see that. 
Let me uh, give you one more chance here, Stan. Tell us a little bit more about the content on your site and that book special you mentioned for us. Go ahead. Okay, the, the book special is easy. It's a copy of Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident by myself and Don Berliner. It's a copy of the second edition, which has the new 5,000-word chapter of Top Secret Magic, just came out last year. And it's my CD-ROM, UFOs, the real story. You can ask me 50 questions and get answers to each. It has everything you always want to know about UFOs in one silly little disc. That whole package, which normally retails for $47 for only 35 including priority mail from Maine. They can get it using PayPal on my website, or they can send a check or money order to Stan Friedman, Post Office Box 958, Houghton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N, Maine, which is M-E, 04730-0958. There are other items on there, but that's my radio bargain for the month. So. Okay, why don't you give that address one more time, that mailing address. Post Office Box 958. Houghton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N, and I spell it because there is an H-O-L-T-O-N. H-O-U-L-T-O-N, Maine, 04730-0958. Before we let you depart, let me ask you a quick question, which will probably take you a week to answer. But is the time coming real soon that all this information is going to come out, or are we going to wait for another 30 or 40 years? What do you think? Well, I hope it's still while I'm alive, and both my parents live to be 89, so I got 18 years, guys. I want it sooner than that. I hope it will be sooner, because Max Planck, a great German scientist, once said, new ideas come to be accepted, not because their opponents come to believe in them, but because their opponents die and a new generation grows up that's accustomed to them. I think we're getting there when it comes to UFOs. It's only too bad that our own space exploration efforts are so badly stalled. It really did, oh I think, a bad job. That can almost be a whole political kind of conversation. David, no leadership. <laughs> well, we can get into the politics. David, you know, after listening to this, and I leave Stanton on the line so he could hear what you say. Now, you've read stuff about Stanton for a long time. Yes. You've met him for the first time this evening. What's your feeling? I'm very impressed. Stanton is one of those people who is applying real scientific thought and analysis to this to this question and i really appreciate that and it's, this whole field has been marginalized and has been pushed under stanton is a guiding light thank him for his hard work and uh, hopefully stanton you'll influence a new generation of people to, to pick up the torch we need to get the answers and thank you for all the work you've done been my pleasure guys and, Get easy. and thank you for joining us on the powercast The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.